good morning. Thanks for coming out. Is it still level one? Who cares, right? They call level one every time the sky sneezes. So this is, this is great. So glad that you're here today. Thanks for taking the time to be here. My, um, the end of my sophomore year of college, I was, I was signing up to take uh, a class in biblical Hebrew the next year. And I remember I thought I knew who the professor was going to be. And I remember somebody said to me, or as I was signing up, they said, oh, no, it won't be this guy. It's going to be the new guy. And I was like, oh, great. Who wants the new guy? Right? And they were like, it's, it's his first, you know, it'll be his first year here. And, yeah, you'll, you'll get the new guy. And um, within about a week of going back to school and starting class with the new guy, I knew I want to take every class I can with the new guy. And so a couple of years of Hebrew and uh, synoptic gospels and intertestamental history and literature later, um, Dr. Wave Nunnally made a huge impact on the way that I looked at interpreting scripture because it opened up for me, um, I think the word that we'll use in part today, lenses into the scripture that I just, in, in all my studies, had not really seen before, talking about ways that you can think about interpreting the scripture, and, and I'll, I'll let him unpack all of that today for you. Now, here's the thing that I didn't realize. You, you fast forward then uh, a year ago when there were, how many of you are here that were on our Israel trip? I know a whole chunk of you are here that are here today. So it couldn't have been too bad. They're back, <laughs> right? Um, and I remember where it really got me. We were standing at Caesarea Philippi, and you were teaching there, and all of a sudden it struck me, I'm 25 years later, just how much Dr. Nunnally's teaching had impacted me. And I, I guarantee you this, there'll be stuff you'll hear today that you've probably never heard before, and there will be things that you'll hear today that you won't, your, your brain's probably going to hurt at the end, just, just to be fair. Um, but it's stuff that's going to open up new doors for you intellectually, biblically, and then that you're going to reap the benefits of, I really do believe, for years to come. So today is going to very much be worth your while. I want to pray, and uh, then we'll get started. So will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for the way it, um, it not only impacts our lives in, in spiritual and emotional ways, but God, the way that you've perfectly crafted history and your spirit's leading um, to allow your word to be a book that, that impacts everything about our lives and our history and in the, the world. So God, I pray today that you would give to us your insight, your thoughts. Lord, we thank you for Dr. Nunnally. We thank you for the, the anointing that's on his life and uh, the impact that you've allowed him to have on so many people. Thanks for um, sharing him with us today. We pray that you would allow us to be um, encouraged and, and blessed and, and, and just plain smarter because of what you're going to do in our lives today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if um, you think I'm a heretic, might be your fault. Um, but I'm really excited to introduce to you, would you give a really big Calvary welcome to Dr. Wave Nunnally? Good morning. I am the new guy. 26 years ago, uh, Pastor Chad and I blinked, and now we're both the old guys. So, so be that. Um, you are, um, you're absolutely welcome, because everything that you get from Pastor Chad, yeah, it's all my fault. Um, 
We're going to have two different sessions today. Uh, one will go up until uh, 10.30, then we're going to take a break, and after we come back from break, we'll do the second session. The first session has to do with uh, what we can know about Jesus from evidence outside the Bible, and I'll intro with that in just a minute. But uh, the second session, we'll be looking at uh, five, six different lenses um, that you can look through to look at the Bible to um, make it make more sense. And I'll intro that when the time comes after break. But that's kind of what we're looking at. Early this morning, we're going to be focusing on uh, exclusively on Jesus. And then we're going to take kind of a shotgun approach in the second session. And we'll talk about, um, I think, some lenses that I'm hoping will open up windows for you into your own Bible so that you understand it a little bit better. Um, quite honestly, guys, most of the stuff that we're going to be looking at today, you will probably never have heard of. That's not saying anything bad about you or about the Bible or about the body of Christ or about your pastors or whatever. It's um, the stuff that we, can, that, that we know from Scripture already that's pretty clear and pretty plain. All right, well, you have already got that. You don't need me to spoon-feed stuff to you you already know or that you already understand. So we're going to be kind of picking a little bit around the edges. And despite the fact that most of what we will look at today, both sessions, you may not have seen, heard of before. That doesn't mean that, that uh, you are defective or that you're broken or that you're dumb or that you'll, ne you'll never get it. The uh, reformers, the, uh, the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, people like Luther and Calvin, came up with a uh, doctrine that they called the perspicuity of Scripture. And that's a, just a big $64 word for that the Bible is plain on the things that are the most important. Like, for example, um, what is God like and what is Jesus like and what is the way of salvation? They said these things are absolutely, eminently clear. And we've got that down. So just understand, put this in perspective. Um, you didn't miss Sunday school class like for the history of your whole life and all of a sudden woke up and you're here on a snowy early Saturday morning and now you don't know. That's not, that's not true that you don't know anything. It's just that we're dealing with some stuff that's a little bit off the beaten path this morning in both sessions. So with that, let me introduce uh, the first session. What can we know about Jesus from evidence outside the Bible? Where does this even come from? I've been teaching Bible college, university, uh, seminary, all the way, from freshmen all the way to Ph.D. students now for more than a quarter of a century. And most semesters, I would get requests, uh, questions from pastors, youth pastors, missionaries, uh, Chi Alpha campus pastors. And, and the question would usually be, I have this person in my congregation or I'm witnessing to this person or some students are beginning to come to our meetings who are asking, who are saying, we're being told in our classes, in our textbooks, we are um, being bombarded with media and the like that says, if you took the Bible out of the equation, you couldn't even prove Jesus ever even existed, much less that he was who he says he was or the Bible says he was or that he did what the Bible says that he did. Um, basically, Jesus is a composite figure, kind of a mythical figure like a King Arthur, 
um, uh, or uh, he's uh, he, he's just he's just someone uh, that is a, a legend uh, and never really even existed. Our question is: Do you have any evidence that Jesus even existed from uh, f- from sources, ancient sources outside the scriptures themselves? If you include the Bible in the argument, that's more or less circular reasoning. That's like using the Bible to prove the Bible, which they're saying, that well, that's not legitimate. Is there anything outside or beyond? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at ancient authors who are writing in Greek, ancient authors who are writing in Latin, and ancient authors who are writing in Hebrew, and we're going to look at literature as well as archaeology to see if there's any evidence for this Jesus of Nazareth that you have trusted for your salvation here and for your eternal destiny in the afterlife, yes? So let's take a look at this stuff and... um, I know it's a big group, but if you've got some kind of a major burning question like what does that word mean, feel free to raise your hand and we'll just treat this as a college classroom. Maybe not college. Let's dial it down to, okay, like a junior high, middle school. Yeah. What is it? Does it need to go lower? <laughs> An elementary, a sixth grade class that if you don't understand a concept or the meaning of a word, just throw a flag up, we'll stop, and we'll, we'll, get, it, uh, we'll get it dealt with right there. Next. Uh, I treated uh, the, quote, Christian material outside the Bible. That's for both the Orthodox uh, Apostolic Bible-believing church as well as for some of the heretical, the heresy stuff like the Gnostic heresy. I've already treated that material in an, uh, in an article that was written back in 08, so a decade ago already. And this is online. The URL or the web address is up there. You're welcome to write it down. But I think Pastor Chris, um, Pastor Chad, you can post this if you like on your website. And you, can, you guys can download everything that you will see here. Um, this can I, is... Can I throw a quick note? Yeah, please. Now, the reason for this is because, first of all, you can't copyright ancient literature. This stuff has been around for more than for 2,000 years, more than, some of it more than 2,000 years. So um, I'm not interested in making any money or publishing this or whatever. I'm interested in you having it for access to talk to people over the water cooler, talk to people at lunch, uh, talk to your neighbor across the fence, whatever. Uh, share this with someone who's gone away to college and come back with their head turned around the wrong way. Um, uh, and I'm also interested in if you've got friends, you've moved here from somewhere and you have a youth pastor back there or you've, you, you know someone that would benefit from this, please just forward the link on um, and then they will have access to uh, that material as well. So we'll have it available some kind of way on the website. Uh, you don't necessarily have to take notes or get all of this down right now. That's not the point of what we're trying to do. So I dealt with that already, and I'm not going to be dealing with um, ancient Christian material on Jesus. What we're going to be looking at is every one of these authors, every, every piece of this pie, the evidential pie that we're going to look at in this session, is all, all comes from people who are not followers of Jesus, never um, expressed a belief in Jesus or the uh, or the um, uh, the New Testament scriptures. Okay, next. 
the first uh, author that we want to look at who talks about Jesus is a first century Jew who never came to faith in Jesus and his name is Josephus. Now, I know that you've heard that language, that word before, because Pastor Chad refers to him on a relatively regular basis. The reason why we're both referring to Josephus is because he was a Jew who was born in A.D. 37. That's within spitting distance of the crucifixion. That's like four years or less than a decade from the crucifixion. He was a contemporary of the apostles. He was a Jew who grew up in the land of Israel, He was writing at the same time that our New Testament was being composed, and he wrote in the same Greek that the New Testament um, uses to communicate in the original language of the uh, Gospels, the letters, the book of Revelation. So you can't find a better source than Josephus. He is right on the money on all of this. He is an eyewitness. He has access to other eyewitnesses. And so what Josephus says is absolutely important. And you'll hear, well, the only th- we don't get anything about Jesus from evidence outside the Bible until you get to the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries. By then, you've got a, a, basically a budding Roman Catholic church. You can't trust it. It's no eyewitness, no, too far from the, 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 the original events. And so um, this is telling us right off the bat, no, we do have original 1st century eyewitness report oriented stuff from historians like Josephus. Josephus says, at this time there was a wise man called Jesus. Bam, end of story. We can quit right now and go back home and watch cartoons. (laughs) You know, because that basically seals the deal. You've got evidence from a writer who's not a Christian from outside the Bible, and he says there was a guy in the first century named, come on, Yes, exactly. Josephus says there was somebody named Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Is that true based on what you knew from the Bible? So is what Josephus is bringing to the table corroborating or confirming or validating or supporting claims made by the New Testament, and it's just a yes or no question. It's not a trick question. Yes. All right, so keep watching what he does. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. True or false based on the New Testament. Okay, so we got the New Testament saying one thing, and we've got Josephus saying the exact same thing. Okay? Uh, Did we look at any of this stuff when we were in Israel? You remember this? Okay. So... And those who became his, notice he has disciples. We hear about that word mathetoi, the Greek for the word disciples in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Jesus had disciples. It, it's, it's not a little tidbit that's unimportant. That's important. Not everybody had disciples back in the days of, uh, of Jesus, whether in the Greek world or in the Uh, the Jewish world. So this is also significant. Those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Does that corroborate? Yes. So it's not just, well, the New Testament writers cooked this idea up. No, Josephus knows about it. And the people in the first century, forget about the New Testament, were talking about the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection on the third day of Jesus of Nazareth, 
And we've got these two corpuses of literature, Josephus' stuff and the New Testament saying exactly the same thing, that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps, because Josephus never came to faith in Jesus. So he holds that out. It's maybe, it's a possibility, he was perhaps the Messiah. So you have, again, a connection between Jesus and Messiah. Is that a connection that's made in the New Testament? Yes. Okay, and so concerning whom the prophets, and we're talking about the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Zechariah, Jeremiah, etc., had have recounted wonders. And that Greek word and the Hebrew that lies behind it, niflaot, uh, these, th- th- this means miraculous works. The prophets predicted that the Messiah would work wonders, and Jesus worked wonders. Next slide. There's another text in Josephus. It's in another book. One was in book 18. This one is in book 20. So this is a completely different uh, passage. And yet here, this Ananus the high priest thought that he had a favorable opportunity. By the way, this is in somewhere around A.D. 62 that this event happens. Um, Because the procurator Festus was dead, and Albinus, the next procurator, Roman military governor, uh, his successor was still on the way. So he convened the judges of the Sanhedrin. Have you heard that word before? Okay, that's a New Testament word. That shows up in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Um, So some component of the Sanhedrin, Jesus appeared before. Paul appeared before the Sanhedrin. Stephen appeared before the Sanhedrin. This is a, a, a Jewish high court that is a reality that both of these corpuses of literature, Josephus and that the New Testament know about. The Sanhedrin uh, was convened and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ. So we don't have one, we have two references in the works of Josephus Flavius to this person named Jesus. In fact, we've got more information in this text than we had in the others because we're told that he had a brother named James. Does that conform to what we hear about, for example, passages like Matthew chapter 13? Are not all of his brothers here, James, Judas, um, Joses, J-O-S-E-S, it's actually almost Spanish, Jose, right? But but it's it's short for Joseph. Uh, and, and Simon, are they not all here with us and are not all of his sisters here? That means that Jesus had at least three sisters, not both, but all. That's what that text in Matthew 13 says. It's really interesting when you start studying carefully these biographical realities, you know, instead of just looking for the speed bumps, the high points like for God so loved the world or all of sin and come short of the assemblies of God or something like, you know, like that. Um, it's... It's, it's fun to, to look at these historical biographical realities because that's what underpins the whole carriage. That, that's what's carrying the, whole, the weight of the whole thing. If the history behind it isn't real, then the spiritual part isn't real. Right? You can't trust that. If you can trust the historical part, then you can extrapolate from that and say, okay, then when the Bible speaks in terms of theology, spiritually, etc., ethics and the like, we can trust that as well. One is supposed to confirm or corroborate the other. All right, so this guy, James, ends up being, A, the head of the Christian church by, by Acts 15. Acts 15, Galatians 1, etc. James, the half-brother of Jesus, same mother, different father, 
Can you do the math on that real quick? Thank you very much, okay? And, um, and, and he's also an author of a New Testament book. Can you, can you come up with the name of the book? that? Yeah, exactly. You see, this is hard math, isn't it? I'm killing you already, and we're into this 20 minutes, right? So James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ and certain others, he accused them of having transgressed the law, delivered them up to be stoned. There's a really interesting work that didn't survive ancient times or antiquity. In, a, in the year 140, an early uh, Christian named Hippolytus wrote a history of the church from, up, from the book of Acts time up to his point, and he describes this event. His works didn't survive, but they got quoted by another guy who wrote a history of the church later in 325 A.D., and his name is Eusebius. Eusebius, the bishop of Caesarea. And Eusebius quotes Hippolytus as saying that they took James up on the same pinnacle of the temple that, that Satan took Jesus, and the Sanhedrin commanded him to renounce his faith in Jesus. And his response to the leaders of the Sanhedrin before the whole community of Israel gathered together in Jerusalem there at the base of the temple and below the, the pinnacle of the temple was, how can I die the, deny the one who did not deny me but died for me? And at that point, he was martyred. Really interesting in. We're told then about the martyrdom of James that happened in A.D. 62 here by Josephus. This is a reality that we're not even told about in the New Testament. We don't hear about the martyrdom of James in the New Testament itself. We hear about it first from Josephus here, and then we hear about it from Hippolytus in A.D. 140. Isn't that fascinating? By the, here's a by the way, because we do have Easter pressing in on us. It'll blink, and it'll be here. I promise. No more snow, hopefully, you know, and, you know, warmer weather and... Um, I'll be in Israel. <laughs> Everything will be looking so much better. But this is one of the greatest Easter sermons that I've ever heard preached in my life. It, just, uh, it wasn't the preacher because it was me, but it was the stuff. It was the stuff. It was the information. It was the material. And that is, uh, in that same passage in Matthew 13, uh, there's a parallel in, in Mark uh, chapter 3. And Mark chapter 3 says... They were standing outside wanting to take Jesus home, thinking that he was beside himself, is what the Greek reads. And it means the same thing. If you're beside yourself with anger, it's like you've gone crazy. You're outside of yourself. Um, they thought that Jesus had lost his mind, and they wanted to take him home to preserve the dignity of the family. And um, this James that in Mark 3 thought he was crazy, in Antiquities, Book 20, died for his faith in his half-brother as the Messiah. Something happened. What do you think it was? Any ideas? They went to Bible college. No. Sorry, Chad. The resurrection. And where do we hear about that? Oddly enough, 1 Corinthians 15 says that he appeared to James... One of the people after his resurrection, he, he made a special appearance to this guy that we're hearing about, and it changed his paradigm, ladies and gentlemen. Gentlemen, it changed everything. He went one, he one eighted on this. Jesus is nuts. I will die for Jesus as Son of God, as God in the flesh, as my Messiah. 
That's a big change. And that's a great Easter story that needs to be told. Use it at work. I, I don't mind. It's not copyrighted. Next slide. All right. We have a guy named Thalos. Thalos is a first century figure and he wrote a history. And according to a later author, Sextus Julianus F. Africanus, uh, about 100 years after the uh, writing of Thalos, he says in Thalos' third book, he calls the darkness that occurred at the time of Jesus' crucifixion an eclipse of the, of the sun, which Julius Sextus Africanus um, thought was incorrect. So he's taking issue with Thalos' identification of the reason for the darkness, but he's nevertheless interestingly telling us that a middle-of-the-first-century author, Thalos, wrote a, a, a multi-volume history in which he identified the crucifixion of Jesus at the same time that there was an eclipse of the sun. That's what we're told by uh, Africanus here. Isn't that fascinating? So again, we've got another first century source talking about Jesus, the crucifixion, and his death at the time of an eclipse of the sun. Next slide. Here's a really interesting work. This guy's writing in Aramaic. And he wrote, he was not a Christian, never became a Christian, and he wrote a letter in A.D. 73. This is during New Testament times, guys. This is when the Gospels are being written at this very time, in the, in the 70s A.D. And he says to his son, what advantage did the Jews gain by killing their wise king? We know exactly who this is referring to, and why is that? Because at this time of history, Jews were dominated by the empire of Rome, and they didn't have a king, and they certainly didn't kill any of their kings. So the only person that this can be talking about is Jesus of Nazareth. So we've got another first century written in Aramaic uh, text from a non-Christian that is testifying to not just the, the existence of Jesus, but the fact that he was viewed, at least by certain people, as a king and that he was put to death by his own people. Come on. This is right on the money. You don't have to say the name every time. It's there. Next. Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger is, um, is a Roman governor. He's the Roman governor of a province called Bithynia, which actually is mentioned in the New Testament. Paul wanted to go there, but in Acts 16, it says that he was prevented by the Spirit. And instead, that, that same night, Paul sees a vision of, of the Macedonian man saying, come over and help us. And because Paul obeyed the, guiding, the guidance of the Spirit, you have great churches like the, the, uh, the church at Philippi. And we have the book of Philippians because of that. You have the church of Thessaloniki, and we've got First and Second Thessalonians because of that. These Macedonian churches that became sort of the springboard for the rest of Paul's ministry and all the way up until his martyrdom in A.D. 64. So important that Paul didn't go to Bithynia. But here's what's really cool. One of the really neat things about this text right here, you're reading it already, right? I see you're not looking at me. I'm not a lot to look at, but this sure is. And so uh, at, uh, uh, at, the, at the time that we would think Acts 16, the spirit of Jesus would not allow Paul to go to Bithynia. Well, I guess God didn't really care about Bithynians. He's more interested in Macedonians. But the reality of it is, by the, by the early first, second century, end of the first, beginning of the second century A.D., 
this Roman pagan, Roman governor, is writing to the emperor Trajan, and he's saying Christians are in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before the sunrise and, writing, and reciting an antiphonal hymn to Christ as God. So we don't, not just, we don't, we're not just referring to Jesus here as the Messiah, the Christ, but he's also being referred to as being fully divine, full deity, and, and being worshipped for that by a community of people that he identifies as Christians. What that's, there's another part of this whole correspondence between Pliny the governor and Trajan the emperor. Pliny's kind of a guy that's indecisive and he doesn't want to get in trouble for making the wrong decision. So he's always, he's ask, he's always asking the, the Roman emperor to babysit him, make his decisions for him. You tell me what to do and I'll carry out your wishes. That way I don't get in trouble. Okay, and so that's the nature of this correspondence. And he ends up describing Christianity at length. He talks about female deacons, for example, who are, and these people who are willing to undergo torture, imprisonment, and martyrdom for the sake of Jesus. And uh, Pliny's letters are just a treasure trove of, of, of information for us about early Christianity. He says that the price of sacrificial animals for the pagan temple has gone so low that it's not even worth feeding them the fodder to keep them alive. Why is that? He says, Bithynia is eaten up with Christianity. No one, he says, the pagan temples are empty because people have come to faith in Jesus. So here's my question again. Did God care more about the Macedonians than he did about the Bithynians? Evidently not. It just was that Paul was not supposed to be the message bearer to go to take the good news to Bithynia. God had a different plan. His plan was to get Paul ultimately to Rome. Um, but uh, he, he loved the Bithynians. He, was, he wanted the Bithynians to come to new life, to abundant life, to know him in his reality. It just wasn't not Paul and not then, not that way. So God's always got a plan. We don't always know it, but he's always that big operating system behind what you see on the screen, and he's got things going on often that we don't even know about. Isn't that neat? Isn't that neat? People that have been on your prayer list for years and years, you have no way. You've all, almost written them off. No, God still has a plan. He's got a point. He's got a, he's got a way. He's got a person or people. Um, so just don't quit. Don't mark them off. Don't write those folks off. Keep praying for them as well. Next. Cornelius Tacitus. Tacitus is an interesting guy because he, is a, he was born in the first century. He died in the first century. And he is an official Roman court historian. So he has access to all of the official archives of the emperors and the senate. You know, he's, he's got, like, access to every volume in the Library of Congress. Cornelius Tacitus, interesting guy. Now, his uh, words here, you may be already reading ahead. You've probably heard these stories, this kind of stuff recited in sermons. Some of you have been around the faith for a few years, decades maybe, lots of them. You've been around where you've heard this story. I'm giving you the source where this comes from. You have his name. Uh, you have the exact reference. You have his dates. And so let's look at what Tacitus says. 
Nero's, Nero's um, the Roman emperor who makes the first official Roman persecution. This is where Paul was, um, uh, was beheaded and Peter was crucified upside down under Nero in A.D. 64. We're talking about middle of the first century. This is where this information coming out of official Roman archives is coming from. Middle of the first century substituted as culprits and punished in the most unusual ways those hated for their shameful acts. And in that respect, you can tell he's no friend of Christianity, right? No friend of Christianity. Hated for their shameful acts, whom the crowd called Christianoi. The O-I is just a plural in Greek. I mean like S in English. Christians. The founder of this name, Christ, had suffered the extreme penalty, which is a euphemism. It's a way of referring to crucifixion without saying the word. And we hear from Seneca and Cicero. You've heard those names when you were in high school, right? Great Roman orators. Well, they left behind literature too. And they said even the word crucifixion should never even pass the lips of a, of a proper Roman. No proper Roman should ever have to look upon a crucified victim. Um, because it was so horrible to Cicero and Seneca, and they were always lobbying to try to get rid of it. Uh, but they, so that people were coming up with these ways of referring to the action, the activity of crucifixion in ways other than saying the word. So the extreme penalty, that's simply crucifixion. During the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Roman military governors appointed by the Caesar, procurators, Pontius Pilate. Again, is this what we're told in the New Testament? Absolutely. Suppressed for a time the deadly superstition. Does that sound like he's a friend of Christianity? The Greek behind this word superstition is daimonios. It means an unhealthy fear of um, demonic spirits. He's not a fan of Christianity, and yet he's in a backhanded kind of way, corroborating so many of the components of the gospel narrative. So the deadly superstition erupted again, not only in Judea, the origin of this evil. Is that true? Yes. Read the first few chapters of the book of Acts. It's all going on in Jerusalem and Judea. Exactly. Uh, same place where Jesus was crucified, Jerusalem. The origin of this, again, evil, deadly superstition, uh, shameful acts, uh, so, again, no friend of Christianity, but also in the city of Rome, where all things, now watch, horrible and shameful. That's, he's referring to your faith. This is Cornelius Tacitus, first century, first century Roman official court historian. All things horrible and shameful from everywhere come together and become popular. Therefore, they were covered with the skins of wild animals and torn to death by dogs. Or they were crucified, and when the day ended, they were burned as torches. You've heard this before, yes? I'm giving you the reference. This is your heritage. Paul tells Timothy, we will reign with him if we suffer with him. This is something that's seldom talked about in church anymore, is this theology of suffering, and especially suffering for the faith. 
You get excluded from that softball team or that bowling tournament or whatever because they know you hold fast to a confession in Jesus. You're standing in that sacred stream with these, with these same people. And there's a, there's a line that goes from us all the way back 20 plus centuries to the first. Next. Suetonius is a contemporary of um, Tacitus, but he it writes history in the way that... Uh, the people who stock those shelves at Walmart or, or at Costco or Sam's Club, you know, with those cheesy paperback books, right? So he's not just writing official court history. He's writing this for the common people. And he writes a history of uh, the Roman Empire and all of the Caesars. So he has a book for each one of the, the Caesars' names. This one comes from life of Claudius. You know about Claudius from the New Testament times. So he, Claudius, expelled the Jews from Rome. We know that this happened in A.D. 49, and it's referred to in the book of Acts. This is the reason why when Paul comes to Corinth, he meets Aquila and Priscilla, and they work together because they were all tent makers, probably more like sail makers. They're living in these port cities. The word probably is sails rather than tents. Not many people needed tents back where they, when they, were, where they were living. But with these port cities, everybody needed extra new sails. Okay, so um, why were these people, Aquila and Priscilla? Because they were Romans. They were from the city of Rome. What, what were they doing in Corinth? They had been expelled, according to Acts 18, by the edict of Claudius. So we have another confirmation. This is not about Jesus. It's about Paul, and it's about the book of Acts, and it's about Aquila and Priscilla and stuff. But you've got another piece of this biblical material corroborated here in this life of Claudius by Suetonius. Since they were always making disturbances because of the instigator Crestus, which is, should be Christos. It's a common Latin misspelling for a Greek word, Christos, which means Christ or, can you give me the Hebrew? Mashiach or Messiah. Yeah. goes straight back into the writings of Isaiah. Yeah. Christ, Messiah, Mashiach, um, Christos, all of that is the same thing, the anointed one. All right, next. Suetonius, again, this is a different book. It's the life of Nero. We've already talked about Nero. First official Christian persecution in AD 64. All right, punishment was inflicted upon the Christiani. There he actually gets the word spelled correctly. That's interesting, isn't it? It's always neat to be inconsistent, I guess. But right, So I guess it's not a spelling class, so we won't take off. He's dead anyway and doesn't care what we think. Right? Uh, he has other issues at this point, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> the, the class of, uh, a class of people of a new and evil doing, and there's that word again, demonios, an unhealthy fear of demonic spirits. And that's your faith again. So again, these people are not, yeah, let's, let's, let's sandbag the position. You know, let, let's help these poor persecuted people out. They hate your spiritual forefathers. They think that they're bad people doing bad things and believing in unhealthy things. Next. Lucian of Samosata. He is a, actually he's a writer of plays. He's like a Shakespeare. He's writing plays. So in this death of Peregrinus, he says, Peregrinus was second only to that one whom they still worship. Who do you, what, what kind of 
being do, do you worship? Do you worship humans? You know, you worship deities, right? So, again, we've got this reference to Jesus is divine. He is deity in the flesh. Uh, he is God. They worship today the man in Palestine who was crucified because he brought this new form of initiation, that's religious, into a religious community, into the world. That first lawgiver of theirs, lawgiver, that means that he was uh, handing down authoritative religious material, uh, um, uh, binding authoritative religious uh, teaching. That first lawgiver of theirs persuaded them that they were all brothers, and Jesus uses that kind of language. If your brother wants to take you to court, then agree with him on the way. If your brother smites you on one cheek, then turn to him the other also, right? Jesus uses that kind of language. They were all brothers the moment that they transgress, deny the Greek gods, and begin again worshiping, just like this here, worshiping that crucified philosopher, which is a way of saying teacher, philosopher, sophist, teacher, and living by his laws, that stuff that, they, that Jesus left behind that was a body of binding authoritative religious instruction. We know about this from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? few scraps in the book of Acts and the letters of Paul, stuff that Jesus taught that the early church considered to be authoritative, which we still understand as being our authority for how we live and what we believe. Next, Celsus uh, is writing in the early second century, and uh, it is cited, his work was lost, but cited in origin the bishop of Caesarea, another bishop of Caesarea, uh, in a work called Against Celsus. This, this is absolutely fascinating stuff, guys. Watch what origin, what, what Celsus says. Uh, a, a person who despises Christianity and, and, and Christians. He fabricated the story, he being Jesus, fabricated story of his birth from a virgin, came from a Jewish village. What would that be? Nazareth. And from a poor country woman. Who would that be? Mary who gained her substance by spinning. We, she's a, she, she was a spinstress, spinster. We don't hear about this in the Gospels. This is something that is out there in the, the Gospel. I call it the Gospel of Public Domain. It's not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's not something that was preserved by the early church fathers and passed on as oral tradition. This is something that's out there in the public uh, marketplace. So this is really fascinating. It's like a fifth gospel almost. Here's what the average person has been, has been exposed to, has been told or heard incorrectly or incompletely or got wrong himself or whatever. But this is just absolutely fascinating stuff. She was driven out by her husband who was a... Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, the... Yes, same as the New Testament. When she was convicted of adultery, we hear this in the Gospel of John chapter 8. Um, we know who our father is, the, Jesus detractors say to him. We know who our father is. Um, are we not right in, in saying that you, are, uh, you have a demon and that you are a Samaritan? That's like calling somebody the worst racial slur that you can possibly conjure up. Words we don't even use anymore. A Samaritan. 
Jews and Samaritans, right? Story of the good Samaritan, right? The Samaritan leper that got healed. The Jesus, he comes back and says, thanks to Jesus. He says, didn't I heal ten and only this foreigner came back to give glory to God? That kind of language. The woman at the well in John 4, right? Um, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's what the text in John says. So uh, that, that's the kind of, uh, of attitude that's being expressed here uh, when it says that she was convicted of adultery. Had a child by a Roman soldier named Pantera. Pantera. This is interesting because early on, the rabbis will talk about it too. Early, early rabbinic authorities, we'll look at them in a moment. The early rabbinic authorities in Celsus are playing on the word, instead of pantera, they're playing on the word parthenos, which means virgin. So if he is the son of pantera, he is the son of the virgin. Okay? okay. Parthenon, you know about that great Roman worship structure from 5th, 6th century BC? Okay, so. Pantera, after she had been driven out by her husband and while she was wandering disgracefully, she secretly bore Jesus because Jesus was poor. He hired himself out as a laborer in Egypt. Now we get an Egyptian connection. We just had Christmas, so we go through the Matthew and the Luke stuff. Even though Matthew's stuff is like a year and a half after Jesus' birth, we still we kind of push Matthew and Luke together and the wise men, the shepherds are all there together and Everybody, the whole, put everybody together, little drummer boy and the whole business right there all on this same Christmas cantata, but the cattle are speaking, right? But only on Christmas night. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Yeah, right. Good luck with that, right? Anybody that's had a newborn? No crying. I guess that means he never had a bodily function, right? Or... Never was hungry, never was sleepy, cranky because he was tired. And with the little door of Jesus, no crying he makes. I mean, we got that down because it's, it, it's in the hymn. H-Y-M-N. So he hired himself out as a laborer in Egypt. We hear this from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew says that Jesus, Joseph, and Mary had to flee from Bethlehem because Herod the king, Herod the Great, was trying to put him to death. He killed the babies in Bethlehem, two years old and under, according to the time he'd ascertained from the wise men. You remember this part of the story, right? It's not the part that Linus quotes in Charlie Brown's Christmas special. That's the Luke version, you know. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. He's even quoting King James. Linus, remember the guy with the blanket, right? Okay. Uh, so he's he ends up in Egypt. Celsus is saying Jesus came from Egypt. Matthew's saying Jesus came from Egypt. And there he learned certain magical powers, which the Egyptians are proud to have. He returned full of pride in these powers and gave himself the title of God. So here's another thing that's interesting. Another text that's talking, connecting Jesus with deity, with divinity. Yeah, But this text is also saying that Jesus had magical powers. Now, they weren't legitimate magical powers. If you liked space balls, he got this from the dark side of the Schwartz, right? This is not the good God who's doing these miraculous works through him. This is the dark side doing miraculous works through him. Did the gospel say anything like this? 
Yes, we know that he cast out demons, but he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, which is a nickname for Satan. So gospels are saying the same thing that this is saying? Yes, in a roundabout way. If you just hold your mouth right, they're saying the same thing. Jesus did miraculous works, which people recognized in his day, in his lifetime, but they attributed the working of those miraculous works to the dark side. It's in a roundabout way saying the same thing. And the rabbis will say the same thing. You'll see this uh, shortly. Okay, uh, next. The graffito is the, is the singular of graffiti. You know that word, right? I is singular in Latin. O is, uh, I is plural in Latin. Uh, o is singular. So graffito, that means it's one drawing on a wall. Okay. The graffito of Alexamenos, middle of the second century. This is within spitting distance of the completion of the New Testament and the death of the last apostles. Within about one generation. Let's take a look. This is from a catacomb in Rome. Look as carefully as you can, and then when your eyes begin to blur, I'll change the slide. <laughs> Pastor John will change the slide. Do you see the, the, the figure of the cross? Do you see the arms that are affixed to the cross? The legs right here? And then do you see a donkey's head on the victim of crucifixion? All right, now let's look at it from another exposure this is just a little bit different camera lens. It's the same thing. Okay? You see here the donkey's head, the arms, the, uh, the, the trunk of the body, the legs. Uh, and then you see here, you see a Greek inscription. Do you see that? We'll look at that again in just a minute. Now we see, coming into clear relief, there's a human being standing at the foot of the cross with his arm lifted up in worship. Do you see this? Now let's take a look at the writing. Next. This is an artist reconstruction, and the Greek is really easy. Alexamenos. You can almost make out all the letters. N-O-S. Alexamenos. Sibete means is worshiping or worships. Theta. Epsilon. Uh, omicron. Uh, theo is worshiping God. This is a pronominal suffix that means his. And then you have an X, which is an abbreviation of the word Christos, Christ. It's a common abbreviation. It's being used by Christian scribes in copies of the New Testament that we have that are earlier even than this. You know, take, talk, people talk about taking Christ out of Christmas because it's X. The X has, for almost 20 centuries, been an abbreviation for the full word Christos. So even though they might be trying, they can't seem to make it happen. <laughs> I love that, don't you? He's still in there, whether they like it or not, whether they abbreviate or not or whatever, they just don't know it. Now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> Alexamenos worships God his, comma, Christ. Next. This is the translation. He's worshiping, again, Jesus as God. So the recognition that Jesus was God in the flesh had reached Rome 
and we know this at least by the middle of the second century, and it has a group of followers that are worshiping him as fully divine. It's absolutely fascinating. Now, flash back with me. How long ago did the Da Vinci Code come out? Ten years? Something like that? Sold over 40 million copies, and then you get the movie, right, with Ron Howard and Tom Hanks, and they make millions and millions more and expose millions more, and they're showing it on the AMC channel almost every week in rerun now, right? The Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code says that Jesus was never worshipped as, as God until A.D. 325, when, according to the, to, to the author Dan Brown, uh, Jesus was uh, voted on and proclaimed as God in Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. Well, he only missed it a couple of hundred years, man. I mean, you can't fault him for that, right? I mean, he's only wrong about as long as the United States has been an independent nation. Horseshoes and hand grenades, right? But look at the people this guy's misled. And this stuff has been around in liberal uh, New Testament scholarship all the way back into the 1700s with people like Sir Francis Bacon and others. Next. Now we get to rabbinic literature, the material from the early rabbis, and we're talking about early 2nd century and even earlier than that. So, uh, here's a reference. I'm not going to bug you with that. You'll have it on the internet. Uh, it's taught that Rabbi Eliezer, who is an early second century uh, authority, said to the group of all of the rabbis gathered together, did not Ben Stada bring spells from Egypt and a cut in his flesh? Spells are what? Magical incantations, doing the miraculous by the dark side of the Schwartz. Okay, so again, Egypt. Where did Jesus come back from? Egypt. He, he, did, he brought spells from Egypt in a cut in his flesh. Ben Stada is Ben Pantera. Do you remember what I said the word Pantera is? It's a play on, it's not the word, it, they don't mean panther. They mean Parthenos, virgin. What does Ben mean? Anybody see the movie? First or second version, Ben-Hur. Son of, okay, so Ben Pantera is a weird Hebrew and then Greek Latin amalgamation, but it means the son of the virgin. Okay, so Ben Stada is, means that that's code for the son of the virgin. Rabbi Hista says the husband was Stada and the lover was Pantera. The mother was Miriam, the dresser of women's hair. So now we're getting another tradition that Mary was not a spinster, but rather she was a hairdresser. Now, for you ladies who like that kind of thing, God bless you. Now you have full sanction. The holy family is represented, and you can go and spend as much money as you want and as much time as you want. Guys, don't give me any pushback on this, all right? Not interested. I'll just pack my stuff up and go home, where it's also snowy and cold. Uh, but, okay, so uh, the dresser of women's hair, and she was false to her husband. Again, a claim that Jesus' uh, origins are not as they should be. You've noticed that in the Gospel of Matthew, it begins with a genealogy. There's a reason for that. Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. Jesus has legitimate lineage against the, these kinds of charges, against the charges we hear like in John chapter 8. All right, so what about this Miriam business? 
That's, it's it's got to be something new to you. What was Jesus' mother's name? Mary, all right? Well, it's either Mary or it's Miriam. It can't be both, can it? Marios is the way the Greek reads in the New Testament. But guess what? In the Gospel of Luke, Luke alone among the Gospel writers preserves the original Hebraic form of what we hear as Marios. And guess what he says? Jesus' mother's name was Mariam. Miriam, Mariam, Marios. It's all the same name, just changing languages from Hebrew to Greek to Latin, now to English. It's the same name. This Miriam was the sister of Moses, remember? She was the one who led Israel's first worship service at the crossing of the Red Sea, Exodus 15. Yeah. So this is a well-known name. In fact, there was a, there was a very revered, respected Maccabean princess whose name was Miriamne in Greek but Miriam in Hebrew. So this has become a popular name, you know, like Betty was for the Betty Grable era, like Heather is. Every other girl now is named Heather or something or other, right? Because of TV and, you know, the name becomes popular. Heather Locklear, I think, was the first one that I ever heard of. Now everybody's named Heather. You probably don't have children named Heather. I'm sure that in this group you don't, but if you do, that's okay too. We've got that covered. Miriam, uh, the dresser of women's hair, and that she had some kind of sexual impropriety that resulted in Jesus. This is the claim in all of these literatures. Next. Jesus escaped to Egypt. Bam! Matthew chapter 2. Come on. Ground zero. Right? Arise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. That's what the angel says to Joseph. After some time in Egypt, and we're not told how long, so we don't really know how long, how old Jesus was when he came back, but an angel appears to Joseph in Egypt and says, Arise, take the child and his mother, and return to the land of Israel, because those who sought the child's life are now dead. Matthew chapter 2. Jesus escaped to Egypt, and a teacher, and this is a technical term, this means the earliest stratum level of rabbinic material. That just goes back to Jesus' day. Um, a teacher has said, Jesus the Nazarene, bam, we hit it again. Where was Jesus from? There you go. There you've got corroboration, Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene practiced magic. We've heard this before, right? We heard this from Celsus. Now we're hearing this from the rabbis, that Jesus did miraculous works, but it was from the dark side. That's where the power was coming from to do the miracles and led Israel astray. And this is a technical phrase that goes back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18, that the false prophet who leads Israel astray to the worship of other gods should be put to death. Okay. So led Israel astray. That's a really interesting set of realities here. That's, that's the charge of the religious leadership. This person is leading the people astray. Next. The rabbis taught Jesus had five disciples. Well, he got the number wrong, but they're in the, they're in the ballpark, right? They're, in the base, they, they're acknowledging that Jesus had disciples. And again, not everybody had disciples. Yeah. Jesus had five disciples. Matai, what does that sound like? Absolutely. 
Nakai. Stretch. Just keep keep working on it. Nakai. Nick. Uh, you got to play with the vowels. Remember Stargate, the first, the original movie. It's all in the vowels, right? Nicodemus. Nicodemus um, is a well-known person in rabbinic literature. His name in Hebrew is Nakdemon ben Gurion, and he was a he was a well-known, wealthy landowner in Lower Galilee who had so much. He was so wealthy that he was very well-known for his acts of charity, giving to the poor, helping people who were in need because of the abundance that God had blessed him with. And he, according to the New Testament, became in John 3 a secret disciple of Jesus and then by the end of the Gospels was a outspoken, was, an, was openly um, uh, confessing Jesus as, as his master. The next one, ne- Netzer, makes no sense at all. We don't, can't connect him to a disciple. But we do know that Jesus was called the Netzer because the word Nazareth in Hebrew is Natzeret. It's that T-S sound. It means the, 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 the lookout spot, the, the lookout um, location, kind of like the watchtower or the frontier um, post or whatever. Uh, so this, this is connected to Jesus' place of uh, where he grew up. Booney, is, that's, another, that's another stretch. But Jesus called James and John B'nai Regesh. So Booney is a perversion of B'nai. It means sons of. Sons of thunder or sons of rage or something like that. So they're, they're close on this one as well. This one just means thank you in Hebrew. It's just a throwaway. It's, I don't know what they're doing with that. It's just dumb. So, but they're having fun. We're having fun. It's a snowy Shabbat morning. Right, Israel guys? Okay, so next. Uh, Babylonian Talmud Sanhedrin 43 and 67. They crucified him on the eve of Passover. John, the gospel writer, is so specific about this. That Jesus was put to death on what he calls, and it's a technical term, the day of preparation. I wrote the article in the Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible. Feel free to take a look at that. It's in some library around here, I'm sure. Uh, So... The day of preparation is the day that the sacrificial lambs in the temple began to be sacrificed. If you put the Mishnah and Josephus together, it's at exactly 3 p.m. The gospel writers are very specific. Jesus died at exactly 3 p.m. The, the technical beginning of Passover wasn't until the sundown of that day. But remember that sundown came early that day, right? Follows said it. There was an eclipse of the sun. And on Passover, back in the 30s, you've got two years in a row where Passover happened and there was an eclipse of the total eclipse of the sun at Passover. And so when the sun goes down, that's when the next day begins, according to the reckoning of Jewish time. And so Jesus dies right at the beginning of Passover, right at the beginning of the sacrifice of up to a quarter of a million uh, Passover lambs, 3 p.m. in the evening. Absolutely fascinating. And this is corroborating this. The eve of Passover. Their chronology for the, it's not just the day, it's the, almost the exact hour that Jesus died. This text and the Gospel of John are fitting hand in glove. Isn't that beautiful? 
It's amazing because he practiced magic and enticed Israel to go astray. We find this again. They're recognizing that, that the miraculous was associated with the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus. No doubt about it. All of these sources are saying it in the New Testament is eminently clear about this. Jesus was a worker of miracles. The only difference is that the gospel writers and other New Testament writers are saying that the, that the power that was at work in Jesus to do wondrous works, perform cures, and to um, uh, do nature miracles like the stilling of the storm on the Sea of Galilee and the uh, miraculous multiplication of fish and bread and the healing of people and, and the casting out of demons. They're saying all of that came from the power of God, from the good side. These sources are saying, yes, he did all these things, but the power was coming from the dark side. That's the only difference here. Everybody in this presentation is recognizing that Jesus did miraculous works. The only difference is dark side, light side. Next. Rabbi Yochanan said, in the beginning, he was a prophet. This rabbinic authority says when he started out, he was right on. That's fascinating. In the beginning, he started out as a prophet, but in the end, he was a diviner. You know what that means, right? He was kind of a magician, sort of a soothsayer, kind of a necromancer. He was a diviner. Positive, negative. Rabbi Papa said, this is what they say. She, now he, he's jumping back to Miriam or Mary, Marias. She was the descendant of princes and governors. What do we hear in the Gospels? That both Joseph and Mary were of Davidic descent. They were, in some measure, they were of the royal line, okay? And this is saying the same thing. She was a descendant of princes and governors, but played the harlot with carpenters. Again, there's that slur against Jesus' uh, origins, against his pedigree, his, his genealogy, that, that he was, um, a, uh, that, that he was um, uh, not legitimately born. Do you remember The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson? Okay. Amazing movie. Uh, most of it was um, said in Royal Aramaic and then subtitled. Do you remember this? All right. That's a problem because Royal Aramaic was not spoken at the time of Jesus or, or in the land of Israel. It was spoken in the Tigris-Euphrates area and it was spoken back in the days of Daniel and Esther. So all kinds of problems linguistically, except there was one part in the movie that was legitimately land of Israel, time of Jesus, Hebrew. And it was when Jesus had been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was being led into the, the old city of Jerusalem to appear before first Annas, the previous high priest, and then Caiaphas, the current high priest. You remember this? There were people up on the wall and they were yelling... Um, slurs at Jesus. And, and this part of the movie is the only part I think that was accurate linguistically. They were yelling not in Babylonian Aramaic or in later Palestinian Aramaic. They were yelling out in Hebrew, Mamzer. Mamzer. M-A-M-Z-E-R. And basically that was, uh, if you translate it into our language, it's S-O-B, but spelled out. Okay? 
And it means, uh, it, the, the word technically means bastard. And, and that was a, that was a te- technical designation in the first century in rabbinic Judaism that meant that person could never marry. He was of illegitimate parentage and could therefore never marry. Did you ever notice that Jesus never married? Didn't have children? That's according, that's anti uh, James Tabor and Simchad Jacobovici and all these other guys that have, you know, this family tomb of Jesus thing that the National Geographic, or was it Discovery Channel, National Geographic Society, I think it was. It got banned in India. They played the dickens out of it here in the United States because they're still trying to brainwash us with the idea that, yeah, you know, Jesus really did marry Mary Magdalene and they did have children. That was the whole upshot of that, uh, of that thing. Uh, it's, there's a passage in the Gospel of Philip that says Jesus used to kiss her on the, and then there's a blank in the text. And that's, that's the only ancient textual background for Jesus married Mary and they had children. And remember, some of his descendants are still alive, according to Tom Hanks and, uh, and Dan Brown. Remember that lady policeman that was helping him try to find the, the, uh, the Holy Grail? She ended up being actually the Holy Grail herself because she was a physical descendant of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. That's the whole premise of Dan Brown's book and the movie that was based on it. And it's just all make-believe. It has no textual basis, whatever. Gospel of Philip, about a 5th century A.D. um, heretical gospel. Jesus used to kiss her on the, and then the text is blank. There's a tear in the text. It's all they've got. Is that all you've got to base your faith on? Is that it? It's one little scrap of a defective manuscript that was written five centuries after the events it claims to describe? No, not at all. You've got 27 books in your New Testament that are all, the message is all the same. And then you've got all this other stuff that's corroborating the message of those 27 books. All right, so played the harlot with, you've still got the carpenter thing going on there. It's a backhanded way of saying, yes, Joseph was one, and so was Jesus, which was common in that day, like, not like today, where my dad was a lawyer and a judge, and, and I'm whatever I am, um, but it's not a lawyer and a judge. But one of the things the rabbis taught was a, a man is required to teach his, his son three things, the Torah, a tr- his trade, and how to swim. I'm not sure how this third thing fits in with the other two, but you've, you've got that in Jesus. Joseph was a, a righteous man, and he was handing down, um, here's, the, here's the Word of God, and here's how you handle the Word of God with sensitivity, the way you interpret it and the way you apply it. And, and Joseph also taught Jesus a trade because Jesus was known as a carpenter. Here's an interesting little tidbit. Uh, Justin Martyr, that wasn't his last name, that's what happened to him. Justin Martyr in A.D. 140 tells us that the that the uh, farm implements that Joseph and Jesus made in their carpenter shop at Nazareth were made so well and with such integrity that many of them were still in use in Justin Martyr's day. That's over a hundred years of consistent usage of plowshares and plows and um, all kinds of wagons and wheels and all other kinds of implements that were used in agriculture. 
I can't, I can't vouch for that, but that's what we're told in the middle of the second century by one of the uh, leaders of the church and one who died for what he believed in, right? Usually when the word martyr comes, like St. Ignatius the martyr, you, we, we should take those people's testimony seriously, especially the really early ones like Ignatius and Justin. All right, so uh, carpenters. Next. There's one final text that I wanted you to look at from the works of the rabbis and the references there. And it's all in a complex right around the Babylonian Talmud tractate Sanhedrin. This is the, the actions, the history, the behaviors of the way that the Sanhedrin was supposed to function. Okay, And so because Jesus had some sort of Sanhedrinic sort of connection at the end of his life, then Jesus, a discussion of Jesus comes into play during that, that portion of this, uh, of this larger work called Tractate Sanhedrin. Woe to him who makes himself alive by the name of God. You have to know a little bit more than just this text to unpack this, but basically what it is is that According to the teachings of the rabbis, the only person who actually pronounced the name of God was the high priest, and he only did that on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, when he went into the Holy of Holies and was praying for the forgiveness of the whole nation, um, wiped, uh, asking that God wipe the slate clean that one day. It usually comes in September. Well, it always comes in either September or October. It's part of that complex high holy days of um, uh, the Feast of Trumpets and the uh, Feast of, um, uh, of Tabernacles and uh, there's the, the, the uh, Festival of Rejoicing over the Law, Simchat Torah, and then there's also this, uh, this uh, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So only the high priest was supposed to know how to accurately pronounce the name. And this kind of story, this legend grew up, and it was, it was going on in the first, end of the first, early second century, that if you could get a hold of that name, if you could ever get that name written down, and, um, and that was also forbidden, not just saying the name, but writing the name, but if you could get it written down and you could pronounce it correctly, then with the power that comes along with that name, you could work miracles. You could work, you, you could do the miraculous. And so what this text is saying is that some kind of way Jesus, as an illegitimate worker of miracles, as a magician, as a diviner, um, as a false prophet, he was able to get a hold of and get control of the power of that name. And by doing that, he was able to, what does this text say? Make himself alive. In other words, Jesus was able to resurrect himself from the dead by an illegitimate, inappropriate, magical use of the name of the God of Israel. But again, in this interesting backhanded way, do you remember what Josephus said at the beginning of this presentation? It says his disciples said that on the third day he rose from the dead. Remember that? So this is out there. This is not just some cooked up thing that we get in the New Testament. Josephus said that's what they're proclaiming in the public squares. This is the, this is the gospel of public domain that his disciples are preaching that he was raised from the dead on the third day. Now we've got the rabbis saying Jesus ra did raise himself. Not at, 
not some say or it's thought that or his disciples believe. They say he did raise, rise from the dead on the third day, but he did it just like with the miracles. He did it by the power of the dark side of the Schwartz. Again, it's a backhanded way of corroboration of the most important component of your and my faith, which is what? Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now, brethren, I delivered unto you as of protos importance, as of primary or foundational or the most basic importance, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was raised from the dead and that he was, and, and that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. These are the three things that Paul says are the most important parts of our faith. And he'll go on to say in 1 Corinthians 15 these three really important things. If Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. And we're misrepresenting God and we are still dead and in our sins. So Paul is hammering away at this in 1 Corinthians 15. Very important chapter on the importance of Jesus' physical, real, not pretend, not spiritual only, physical resurrection from the dead. And on the basis of that lies our entire faith and our future, our destiny. And I encourage you to go back and read 1 Corinthians 15 sometime between now and Easter and get on board with this. But here's a cool thing. He made himself alive. Most of the time when you read Paul or you read the other gospel writers, you hear God raised him from the dead, right? The God the Father raised him from the dead. But in the Gospel of John in chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. That's in the gospel tradition as well. Jesus, some kind of really interesting sort of way, is the agent of his own resurrection, at least according to John 2. That's fascinating, isn't it? And then this text comes along. He, him who makes himself alive and comes along and corroborates that text in John 2. How crazy is that? Is it amazing that we've got this kind of stuff? All right, now I want to tell you this, just in the interest of full disclosure. This is just the cream that rises to the top of the milk. What I've put in this, this is just a speck. There's lots of other stuff, archaeology and ancient texts, ancient literature. Some of it is more difficult to interpret. Um, some of it is a little bit further off the beaten path even than we already are, and we're already in the weeds, right? All right, so I just want you to know that, that this stuff is, it, it, all this is is the best of the best. There is more. You're welcome to go seek it out. It's there. So is all of this. I presented this one time at a chapel service at Evangel University, and um, it was on a Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock. At 11 o'clock, my um, department gets together every week for a regular fellowship, and sometimes we do a little bit of business. Mostly we just tell really dumb stories or jokes and make fun of each other, okay? It's a very enlightening, you know, very edifying time. Um, 
But it is fun because we love each other, and, and we're not in competition like at these, most of these state schools where you're trying to get a leg up because you want the promotion, you want to make the, do the publication, you're hiding things and stuff. We, our stuff is out there in full view because we're encouraging one another, supporting one another. We are cooperating with, with one another rather than competing with one another. So I raised this question at that weekly luncheon of my department, Biblical Studies. I said, guys, have you ever heard of any of this stuff? I just present, the stuff I just presented to you, it's no different. And they said, two of them, two. These people have PhDs in like Old Testament and theology and Hebrew and church history and that kind of thing. I said, did you, is that old hat to y'all that, or did you, already, did you already know all that stuff or is that new? Two of them said, well, I had heard of that first reference in Josephus, the, the Antiquities Book 18, the one about in his conduct was godly and virtuous and that kind of thing, had disciples and rose from the dead according to his disciples' testimony. That first one that we saw, not the one about James in Book 20, the one in Book 18. And two of them said, yeah, I've, we, we've read, we heard about that, one, that first one in Josephus. The rest of the stuff we've never heard of. We didn't even know about the one, the reference in book 20 of Josephus. Isn't that amazing? PhDs in biblical studies. So evidently this stuff is, it's, it's not hard to get at. It's out there. I didn't have to like rob the Vatican Library, you know, any of that weird <laughs> stuff, you know, like in the Da Vinci Code. Um, it's out there, but it just seems like the, the dust of, of history has covered it up. And so um, that which was formerly hidden, I have now made known to you, if I can steal some of the words of the New Testament. And I hope that this stuff here uh, is going to help you um, be affirmed in your faith, number one, but then number two, be equipped in your faith to share this stuff with neighbors and co-workers and maybe family members and acquaintances and people that you bump into with your shopping cart at Kroger, you know, or whatever. Anybody that, any opportunity that you have to share about this historical reality of um, the, the Jesus of the Gospels because look at what this has done, what these texts have opened up to you. Next. The conclusions are that there was a man called Jesus, and he was from a Jewish village, and his earthly fa father was a carpenter, and his mother's name was Mary or Miriam or Marios or whatever you want to Mary was of royal ancestry. He and his family were uh, poor. All of this stuff is what we get in the Gospels, but this is what we get in this Gospel of public domain, this kind of fifth Gospel we've been looking at today. He claimed virgin birth. His opponent said that Mary was unfaithful sexually. Next. That he, his opponents claimed he was illegitimate. He escaped to Egypt and later returned to Israel. He had a brother called James. He was known to be a teacher uh, he, he had disciples. He founded a new community of brothers based on his laws or teachings. Next, he was known to be wise. He was known to be virtuous and godly. He was known as a prophet. He was known as a worker of miracles, even though they said he did this with magic. His opponents said that he led Israel astray. This is the claim of the rabbis and the charge against Jesus in the New Testament. He was called the Christ or the Messiah, uh, he claimed divinity. I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. This is going on in Jesus' very lips, and that's what these guys are saying. Next. 
He was worshipped by his followers as God. He was condemned by a Jewish court on the eve of Passover. We had the very day, the exact day in practically time. He was crucified. That's the way he died. And it was by um, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Um, It's really interesting. The Gospels tell us this, and so does this Gospel of Public Domain that Jesus was condemned by a Jewish court on the eve of Passover, but he was crucified by Romans. How weird. That, that is very unusual, highly unusual. That it's, It would be typical that it would happen like with Stephen. Stephen was condemned by the, the Sanhedrin, and he was put to death by the Sanhedrin. You don't usually have this admixture, but there was an interesting Jewish law that forbade execution during a a major feast, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So what, the, what the, the Jewish high priests were able to do was to, was to coerce the Romans into doing their dirty work for them since they couldn't do it themselves. And the New Testament records that reality, and so also does this gospel of public domain. Isn't that fascinating? This really strange, unusual jurisprudence process and then the execution that followed, highly unusual but incredibly accurately preserved in our Gospels and reflected in these texts as well. Condemned by a Jewish court, executed by a Roman um, action. Um, And specifically by Pontius Pilate. Earliest followers said he was resurrected from the dead and he was perhaps the Messiah. And in other words, put all of that together, where the two go together, our Gospels and this Gospel of Public Domain written mostly by people who hated Christians and Christianity. In other words, next slide, pretty much every major assertion of the New Testament authors about Jesus' biography, in other words, who he was and what he did, is supported by first and second century evidence outside the Bible. I rest my case and I yield the majority of my time to the honorable men and women of uh, Toledo slash mommy slash anywhere around here that you chose to drive. Do you have any questions that I can help you with in the next uh, three minutes before we break? Bladder break. Yes, ma'am. I'll repeat for people who didn't have, have the, weren't able to hear the question. Why would the uh, crucified man in the Elexamenos Graffito have a donkey's head? It goes back, interestingly, to about the 3rd century B.C. and a, an Egyptian author named Manetho the Egyptian. And he said that the only thing in, in, inside the Holy of Holies of the Jewish temple was a, a donkey's head and that Jews worshiped the donkey's head. And then from Manetho, then it shows up in other places in ancient literature as well as a way of demeaning someone's religion uh, who is worshiping a god other than you as being illegitimate and pretty much idiotic. And so the person that wrote this probably knew that tradition of, yeah, Jews worship a, a donkey's head, um, and 
we all know they're a bunch of idiots anyway. And, but that's, that's, again, even though that is a very derogatory way of referring to someone's object of worship, it's saying, I and the Father are one. The Jewish God that is represented by, by people who hate Judaism and Jews and think that their worship is stupid by a donkey head saying Jesus, is, Jesus is, has been placed in the same position as the covenant God of Israel. It's fascinating. Thanks for asking that question. I appreciate that. Yes, sir. Celsus' work as a whole was lost. What we do have from Celsus is quotes in later authors that are referring to his works like Origen, the bishop of Caesarea. So yeah, that's, we don't have his actual work in, 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 in its totality. We have bits and pieces. We have quotes from later authors. That's the best we can do. That's, that is true of a lot of ancient works, a lot of ancient works. Give you an example. Second Maccabees is a 16 chapter book written about the year 105 BC. He says it's a condensation of a five volume work of a guy named Nicholas of Damascus who wrote a history. So there's just, a, we don't have that five, I wish we did. Here's another cool thing. Did you guys read the article that I wrote about the scroll from the, um, the Engedi synagogue? You did read that? You get the point? that they now they're able to digitally, these little things that look like cigars that they can't unroll because they're too fragile, they're carbonized by fire, etc. They're now able, because of some breakthroughs in technology, to digitally scan those without opening them and read their contents because wherever ancient ink is, it's the, it creates a raised spot on the surface of the scroll so they can they can calibrate this so carefully that they can tell where the ink, the raised spots in the manuscript are with the ink. And then that, that, that gives them a map that gives them letters and words and whole sentences. And we have a probably, we've got somewhere over 300 of these. Um, one from a large library at Pompeii, where the, the, the destruction of Pompeii by Mount Vesuvius, A.D. 79, there's no telling what's going to come out of that library. Some of this stuff has it's, it's got to be there. So I am super excited. Technology, ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen is, is not always bad, just usually. <laughs> Technology is not always bad, but sometimes it helps. Sometimes it moves the ball for us in the community of faith, and this one definitely will. I am really sitting on pins and needles waiting to see because that's just one library where you've got over 300 and they only excavated half of that library so more than likely there's another 300 or so in the other part that wasn't excavated and because of this discovery now being able to digitally scan those little cigar looking scrolls from the first half of the library maybe they'll go back and excavate the others and only Jesus knows what's going to come out of that excavation and then this new uh, technology that we've got. We are living in momentous days. We are living in incredible days. Other questions or comments? Yes. You're going to have to be, you're going to have to get the last word because we're at break.
letters. Yeah, I only quoted about two or three lines from one letter. There's a whole correspondence. By the way, all you got to do, some of you may already be there. If, you're, uh, if you, you guys have uh, Wi-Fi in this room, okay, you may already be reading some of this. Letters, um, the, the correspondence between Pliny the Younger, uh, Pliny the Elder was his uncle and, got, and died in the, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. He was a naval officer and he was evacuating people from Pompeii and uh, a fireball hit his boat and sank it. So that's why he's called Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger and uh, Pliny the Younger and his letters to Trajan the emperor. You'll find it on the internet. Praise the name of Saint Al of Gore, right? <laughs> that awesome, amazing, wonderful inventor of the internet by his own admission. What a world we live in. Not corroborated, right? <laughs> All right. So you. Does that make sense? The question was, uh, what in con bigger context, where do we get this other material from Pliny the Younger, the governor of Bithynia? So there you have it. It's out there on Al Gore's internet. Uh, That's now in there? Where, where are we going after the break? Um, the next session, the next session we're doing lenses into the Bible, um, uh, developing pers uh, perspectives f into Scripture that will equip you, that will tool you up so that you are looking at Scripture sort of with the same kind of methodology or approach that we were using um, first uh, session this morning. Um, it'll be more show and tell, more pictures, I promise, and, and they'll be fun. So, Pastor Chris, thanks. Can you show your appreciation for Dr. Nelly? Very cool.